Don't mess with the bull, young man. You'll get the horns. Check it out. Now we ride the rails to make the markets make sense. We can't predict the future. Gotta use common sense. Gotta use all the tools. Break out the workbench. Sharpen up our blades. Ratchet up the wrench and get down to the work at hand. Roll out the charts. Help us understand. Resistance and support. Supply and demand. Stochastic oscillators. Bollinger bands. D-mark indicators. Ichimoku clouds. Where's my CMTs? Get up and get loud. We're talking MACDs, ADs, and golden crosses. Building bases, consolidation, sidestepping losses. There's wisdom in those patterns. It's multi-dimensional chess because the price is always right on the Investopedia Express. Welcome back and welcome aboard and mind the gap because that chasm between investors' expectations and the realities of the intermarket dynamics is growing a little bit wider. U.S. markets limped through the week last week despite a slight recovery on Friday as tech and consumer discretionary stocks led by Apple lost their footing. Shares of Apple fell more than 6% last week on headlines concerning China's ban on iPhones for governmental use. Keep in mind that China, Hong Kong, and Taiwan are Apple's third biggest market, making up around 18% of global sales. The ban on the iPhone for government use could dent sales by about 5%, according to Alliance Bernstein. But the bigger worry is what if the Chinese government extends that ban to consumer Consumers. Don't get tripped up on the irony that the iPhone is made in China by Chinese workers. And we should probably expect Apple CEO Tim Cook to take the PJ over to Beijing to plead his case. As Apple goes, so goes the market. At least the Nasdaq and the S&P 500, which fell 1.9% and 1.3% last week, respectively. A spike in oil prices, thanks to news that Saudi Arabia and Russia will extend their production cuts, also weighed on sentiment as worries about inflation perking back up again drove Treasury yields higher. Never mind the fact that Fed officials were piping up across financial media last week, opining that interest rates may not need to go higher. Everyone is getting used to the idea that they're going to be at or near these levels for longer. And that leads us straight into our big three for the week. Number one, no matter how you look at it, the case for buying stocks is just not that strong right now. Irrespective of the fact that September is one of the worst months of the year for the stock market historically, the risk-reward ratio is just not all that compelling at the moment, no matter what month we happen to be in. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that the earnings yield for the S&P 500 over the yield that U.S. Treasuries are offering is just not that compelling at the moment. Michael Hartnett from the B of A data analytics team points out that the S&P 500 earnings yield, which measures the trailing earnings per share of the index divided by its current market price per share, sits at just 4.6%. Meanwhile, yields on short-term treasury bills are over 5.5%. That's a difference of a negative 90 basis points, the lowest it's been since the year 2000. That's not very compelling for portfolio managers who are trying to earn alpha for their clients. When the earnings yield of the S&P 500 is well above that of T-bills, that's the time to get bullish, like in March 2003, March 2009, etc. When the gap is negative like it is now, and like it was in August of 2000 or July of 2007, hold your head. Number two, those treasury yields are elevated because a lot of investors are not so sure the Fed can engineer a soft landing for the economy after the most aggressive interest rate hiking campaign in decades. And even if it can, those interest rates are likely going to stay higher for longer. We've heard that. 
That uncertainty has produced an inverted yield curve for treasuries that has now lasted longer than any period of inversion since 1980. The spread between the 10-year and the three-month treasury yields have been negative for 220 consecutive days. In case you weren't around back in 2007 or 1980, those were dark days for the economy, and the economy fell into deep recessions from 2008 through 2009 and from 1980 through 1982. Deep yield curve inversions are usually the harbinger for recessions, but the U.S. economy has managed to skirt one so far, and banks like Goldman Sachs and others continue to lower the probability that we'll have one this year or even next. Why? Because the labor market is really strong if you look at job and wage gains, plus the fact that more than $7 trillion was sent out to households and businesses amid the pandemic, that softened the blow of those rate hikes. Safe to say, they didn't teach this kind of economic dynamics when I was in school, but they will in the future. Which leads us to number three. U.S. household net worth jumped to a record high in the second quarter, and we can thank the stock market and the ever-rising value of home prices for that. According to the Fed's latest report on household finances, household net worth increased by $5.5 trillion or 3.7% from April to June. The split between equity holdings and real estate owned by households was pretty even at $2.6 trillion and $2.5 trillion, respectively. Of course, not everyone is feeling that surge in household wealth. It depends on your household and, more importantly, whether you own real estate or not. If you don't, then you know that housing affordability is about as bad as it has been since 1989. The National Association of Realtors Housing Affordability Index sat at 87.8 in July, matching the lowest level in 35 years. To put those numbers in perspective, here are a few other numbers to add into the mix. A level of 100 on the affordability index means a family with a median income, which is around $70,000, has enough income to qualify for a mortgage at the median home price. The median home price in the U.S. is a whopping $416,000, up 26% from the second quarter of 2020. In the second quarter of this year, the typical family spent 28.5% of their income on principal and interest of their mortgage payment each month. That's also at an all-time high, and the qualifying income for a mortgage based on a 20% down payment was a record $104,496 in July. And we wonder why younger generations feel like they won't have it as good as their parents. Let's get set up for the week ahead, and inflation is back on the menu with the release of the August Consumer Price Index on Wednesday and the Producer Price Index on Thursday. Don't be surprised to see inflation piping back up again thanks to higher oil and gas prices. The CPI is projected to have risen 0.5% last month, which would mark the fastest monthly increase since January. On an annual basis, consumer prices were likely up 3.4%, up from that 3.2% back in July. The core CPI, which excludes volatile food and energy prices, likely rose 0.2% from a month earlier, or 4.3% year-over-year, decelerating from 4.7% in July. This would mark the smallest annual increase in two years, and that data point will be key for Fed officials ahead of their interest rate meeting next week. Producer prices likely rose 0.4% last month, accelerating from July's 0.3% rate. So while inflation is way lower than it was a year ago, the path towards the Fed's 2% target rate looks more and more challenging. On Thursday, the U.S. Census Bureau will issue retail sales figures for August, and we should expect to see a smaller rise than previous months, but still an increase. Consumers keep on spending despite high prices, and credit card balances keep on rising. The European Central Bank will hold its latest monetary policy meeting on Thursday, and it is expected to hold interest rates steady after hiking them nine consecutive times since last summer. 
Apple will hold its 2023 annual fall event on Tuesday, and they're calling it the Wonderlust Reveal. The big headliner, the iPhone 15 and iPhone 15 Pro release. Apple's new iPhone reveals are generally a source of great excitement for the industry and its investors, but the cloud hanging over Apple, given the Chinese government ban on iPhones for official use, will be hanging over that event, to be sure. And Alphabet's Google will finally face its long-awaited antitrust trial this week brought by the U.S. Justice Department. Federal prosecutors allege that the tech giant has used a string of illegal business deals to cement the dominance of its ubiquitous search engine. The case has been three years in the making since the DOJ first accused Google of illegally eliminating competitors by paying billions of dollars to smartphone makers, including Apple and Samsung, to make sure its search engine is preloaded as the default onto their web browsers. The DOJ claims that Google has long broken the law in its quest to remain, quote, the gateway to the internet, illegally gaining the leg up on competitors such as Microsoft's Bing, Mozilla, and DuckDuckGo. And time is running out for labor negotiations between the United Auto Workers and the big three Detroit automakers, Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis. If an agreement isn't reached by September 14th, the union could go on strike. 97% of its members are in favor of a work stoppage if no deal is reached, and that could cost the struggling auto industry billions of dollars. And stop the presses, we finally have a big IPO coming to market. UK-based chip designer Arm is looking to raise $4.87 billion in the biggest U.S. IPO so far this year, which could value the company at as much as $52 billion. Arm had previously been duly listed on the New York and London stock exchanges up until 2016, when Japanese conglomerate SoftBank bought it for $32 billion. SoftBank will retain a majority ownership of Arm, holding 90.6% of its shares once it goes public. As such, less than 10% of the company's shares will be available to retail investors. We'll see if investors have any appetite for ARM. There are plenty of macro and fundamental factors weighing on the U.S. stock market lately, and you know them well. Sticky high inflation, high interest rates, pre-election year jitters, earnings concerns, geopolitical uncertainty, and on and on and on. Walls of worry just about everywhere you look. But if we ignore all of that, which is hard to do, I know, and look at what the charts, the patterns, and the indicators are telling us, there may be some technical reasons stocks are hitting so much resistance lately. Let's go inside the patterns with one of our favorite technicians and strategists. Katie Stockton is the founder and managing partner of Fairlead Strategies, an independent research firm and investment advisor, and we are so pleased to have her back aboard the Express. Welcome. Thanks so much, Caleb. You are not surprised by this choppiness and pullback at all. I've been reading your notes and you saw this coming and you pointed two key indicators we need to be watching to see how this shakes out. The DeMarc or DeMarker indicator and the momentum-based stochastic indicators, which you say need to turn higher. For those of us who are white and yellow belts in the indicator dojo, what are those and why are they important right now? Well, you know, we've been watching these indicators for some time when there's very strong momentum behind the major indices, we are more inclined to ignore overbought conditions because they can be sustained on positive momentum. We had breakouts in the major indices in May. Those breakouts are great follow through. So honestly, it's not that surprising to ultimately see the corrective phase that it is underway. And the corrective phase is associated with a loss of momentum that right now is, I'd say, more short to intermediate term. It's not a long term issue at this point. 
but we do have long-term overbought conditions that the market is contending with. And as you mentioned, our trustee overbought oversold measures like the DeMarc indicators and the stochastic oscillator, those have or still point lower right now. Uh, we often see corrective phases unfold in sort of an ABC matter. Um, and that means they go from downdraft to a recovery rally and then a final downdraft. And we believe we're in essentially the C wave of the corrective phase with the A wave having unfolded in early August. Right. So then if you look at what you call the oscillators, some of those momentum ones, what are you actually looking at when we talk about? Yeah, as a technical analyst, we are focused solely on price and we're trying to measure trends and not only measuring trends, but the momentum behind them and whether they might be maturing. So that that's the hard part, right? We can all see a trend. We can see the slope of the moving averages. The stochastic oscillator is measuring just that sort of price momentum. It is a formula that, that would be a little intimidating perhaps to discuss, but what it's trying to show is where something has closed near a high-low range over a period of time. And if it continually closes near the high end of that range, it supposedly gets more overbought. And then when you have a downtick in momentum, well, that's something that we tend to react to. It's it's not the overbought condition in and of itself. It's the downturn. And indeed, we saw those overbought downturns in early August. And we think the market's still somewhat reeling from that, but it appears healthy at this time. We, we have a more neutral long-term bias until the market can break out. Um, but we feel that the next sort of downdraft will at least give us more of a short to intermediate term buying opportunity, a chance to take advantage of those uh, breakouts from a few months ago. All right, Katie, let's do short-term, medium-term, and long-term for the S&P 500. What do you see in the charts? Yeah, the short term. So we're looking at probably another couple or few weeks of downside, in our opinion. And we say that based on the norms for our indicators and how long it typically takes the market to get oversold. Uh, the market is not oversold yet, um, either in price terms or looking at things like market breadth, which measures participation out there. Or, or even sentiment. Sentiment has certainly fallen from what we would consider overly bullish extremes. That's when you tend to get pullbacks when people are too greedy. We haven't gotten to the place where now people are fearful. And so perhaps the market needs to have a little bit of a, a shakeout. It doesn't need to be a dramatic you know, selling climax or anything like that. But perhaps sentiment needs to get a little uh, more bearish to be the stuff of a market low. But I would say probably intermediate term, when we focus intermediate term, we're usually talking about three to four months, sort of a, a one quarter time frame. And over that time frame, we're more bullish because it is a cyclical bull trend in the S&P 500. So if we can look out to that short term buying opportunity, I think that will have a decent up move to take advantage of in Q4. It doesn't mean uh, you know we close the year strongly, but at least something that has a little, you know, enough shelf life I would say to take advantage of on the long side. And that's what we'll be watching and waiting for and during that rebound, we would look for the former leadership of the market, the leading sectors year to date to resume that trend of leadership 
The hard part is that we don't know if that sort of up move will have shelf life because we do have the long-term overbought conditions that the market's contending with. They haven't yielded any ominous sell signals on the monthly charts, but it's something that will make it harder for the major indices, including the S&P 500, to break out. Where those indicators would improve, it's a little counterintuitive, but it's with a breakout above 4,600 thereabouts. It's a former resistance area for the S&P, and it's proven to be somewhat important. The last pullback or this pullback that we have left that resistance intact. So it's proven to be a pretty strong level. Above that, the indicators are start are going to start to look improved because you'll have these little upturns on the charts. Yeah, let's get into some of those sectors. And you talk about former leaders resuming their leadership eventually. And I assume you mean tech there, IT, internet and communication stocks are very strong. Chip stocks obviously very strong if you think about NVIDIA and some of those other leaders. But let's do the IT and the internet and communication sectors. What's your outlook there sort of rest of year as you look at the inside the charts on those sectors? Yeah, and, and we do think that there'll be beneficiaries of the next up move and, and exhibit leadership during that. We've even seen somewhat surprisingly, but in the backup that we saw in late August, so the oversold bounce that followed that initial A wave of the correction, that bounce did see two weeks of pretty solid outperformance by not even just the mega caps, but also small and mid cap technology names sort of small and mid-cap growth too. So we think that the market will gravitate back towards those areas as soon as we feel that there's some convincing tradable low in place from the major indices. So we would look for their performance. We are bullish on technology as a sector from a relative perspective beyond the very near term. So during the pullback, we would probably expect some digestion or a pullback in relative terms to then give way to the, sort of the persistent uptrend from there. The semiconductors have exactly that type of setup too. So it's not just internet or software, but we're looking for, you know, a little bit more consolidation in relative terms and also absolute terms near term to then give way to a resumption higher, um, both in absolute and relative terms for those uh, sectors and subsectors of tech. What about healthcare, which had been pretty strong. Some people think of it as holding up well in times of economic uncertainty. I know you don't care about too much about those fundamental or macro indicators. I know you think about those, but what about that as a sector in terms of its momentum and strength? Yeah, I mean, I guess I care about them and that they're the driving force right behind these trends. But we're just here to really measure the trend and, uh, you know, it tells you what's happening, not why it's happening. You know, for a healthcare, we did upgrade it very recently to overweight, and this is in relative terms. So we're looking for a phase of outperformance versus the S&P 500 after a fairly prolonged phase of underperformance. Healthcare has not been really shining this year, year to date. It's been more about the mega caps and, and technology and communications, uh, certainly than healthcare. But we're starting to see what we would call signs of life in relative terms. And some of the stocks just have gotten quite oversold and into some long-term support levels that makes them compelling, at least for a relief rally. So we feel that's somewhat compelling. Also, the biotech sector, which has been really wound up in this just very tight consolidation much of this year. We think it has the potential to resolve to the upside. It hasn't done that yet. But if we start to see breakouts from the likes of an IBB or an XBI ETF, well, then that would be a nice technical list for additional sort of strength from the healthcare complex. Right. Okay. Home builders, which 
We're sitting at 52-week highs just a couple of months ago, even though the housing market is in total disarray in this country. Those have pulled back. Those are sensitive, obviously, to interest rates and a lot of other things. What's your take on the home builder sector? Yeah, I mean, they they were seemingly unstoppable for such a long time, and their trend of relative outperformance is still there long term. Short term, of course, we have seen a pullback develop. It's a pretty significant pullback. And it is carrying over to the relatives as well. So we think it's a, a space that's out of favor and probably will remain so for at least a few more weeks, if not longer. So we would prefer to be on the sidelines in the home building space right now with the intention to ultimately revisit it. That It's a secular bull trend, uh, but sort of a corrective phase within that context. And a lot of them still have a good deal of room to support levels, and they're still not quite oversold yet. So we allow them to come to us in terms of better entry prices and look for them to perhaps outperform coming out of it. But the loss of upside momentum behind the ratios, when you look at something like an XHB versus the S&P 500, it's not insignificant. So I, I suspect maybe that it's gone from that very decisive phase of outperformance to maybe it's a more of a, an inline performing sector. And certainly if we do see yields break out, that would be a normal function of that. Talking about yields, let's talk about financials, which had a ton of headline pressure right in the spring when we had some bank failures. There was that going on. There's the high interest rate factor going on. There's just a lot of concerns about just in the macro sense, commercial real estate, debt by consumers, et cetera. But let's just get into price. Let's just get into patterns here. What do they look like to you today? We're actually writing up the financials and REITs today. And it's been a sector that, you know, you can find opportunity there, but overall it, it's been more of a downtrending space. It has not outperformed in any meaningful way. You can at times capture these sort of counter trend phases of outperformance. And indeed, we have seen, I'd say, relief from the, the recent trend of underperformance through the springtime as a function of those bank failures. So I think we've come out of the woods in a way in relative terms, but it's hard to find really good looking charts there. You know, what we like to see from the charts bottom up are positive catalysts and positive catalysts require usually a momentum shift favorably, something that might manifest itself in a weekly MACD indicator or some kind of breakout, which of course we're really not seeing right now from the financial sector. So we'd wait for some positive technical catalysts there to act as an impetus for more meaningful upside follow through. And boy, I mean, the REITs have been collectively range bound under pressure, though, very much so in, in relative terms, especially considering their, I guess, historically defensive properties of late. So what we're seeing there, of course, is the influence from treasury yields and the uptrend there. And it's not that surprising. And I think where that would get worse is if you see 10-year yields clear resistance around 434. That's a very widely watched resistance level. We think we're going to see a consolidation, but eventually a breakout is certainly possible given the prevailing uptrend. Let's do Bitcoin because I think Bitcoin is the only way to really look at it is through technical analysis, right? To, through price. There are so much mystery out there on the on the outside, then the stuff we'll never get access to, but price doesn't lie when it comes to Bitcoin, which was having a really nice rally. If you want to look at those macro factors, the potential that the SEC might green light a Bitcoin related ETF is out there, but it's really price and it's really momentum that tells you the story of Bitcoin. What's it telling you today and what do you think it's going to happen for the rest of the year? 
Yeah, I mean, with Bitcoin, I, I agree with you. Uh, we're somewhat biased, right, in terms of our take on Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. We do feel like there's, a, I guess, a lack of consistent and, I guess, applicable analysis out there. So, so we took it upon ourselves to report on cryptocurrencies weekly, just to have that consistent and professional coverage of it. And so we know that both Bitcoin and Ether starts really very well. We also do some relative strength work on the altcoins. And both Bitcoin and Ether have retraced after having seen base breakouts, or at least what looked to be base breakouts a few months ago. So now they've kind of come right back into these support levels, putting them at a proving ground from a technical perspective. There are still long-term headwinds, long-term overbought downturns there that we have our eye on. So we don't feel like we have a compelling case to add exposure to the cryptocurrency market at this time. What we would like to see is the same thing that we want to see out of equities, oversold upturns, you know, short-term breakouts, moves above the 50-day moving averages, things of that nature. Uh, what's been a little unusual about the recent downdraft is that the altcoins have actually done pretty well in relative terms throughout the weakness. Um, so Bitcoin hasn't necessarily been the safe haven play that it historically has been. So that's interesting. I don't know exactly what to make of it. But, you know, Solana, for one, as a good example of one that has has done relatively well. So perhaps the breath is going to improve on the next up move, but we don't think that next up move is imminent. All right. For the novices out there, and there are plenty of us out there that were fascinated with technical analysis, some of us know a little bit about it, but if folks who want to get into it a little bit, you're such a great educator, give us two great indicators to put on our screens that are always good to just take a look at to give us a good sense of market direction. Yeah, you know, I'd have to say moving averages, we would probably apply the 50-day moving average and the 200-day moving average, something we would always have on a daily bar chart, because not only can they give you a good read on the prevailing trends, both intermediate term and long term, but they also tend to act as support and resistance. So you'll see an uptrending stock pull back right to its 50-day moving average and find some buyers there. And, and it could be in part because they're easily programmed into various algorithms and models, but they really can add value and eliminate some of the noise that, that is inherent to these markets. I love those. We're going to link to those in the show notes, and we're going to link to Fairlead Strategies Research. Folks, if you want to go deep on this, they do excellent work over there, Katie and her team. They're going to give you a free look at their research. We'll put the link to that in the show notes. Let's talk about your ETF that you guys launched, I think earlier this year. It's a TAC, T-A-C-K is the name of the ETF. Tell us what's in it and what it's all about. That's right. It's a fairly tactical sector ETF, and we launched it in March of 22. So a very difficult market for, for a launch of an equity product, but it sort of proved its muster in limiting drawdowns. It's designed to leverage sector rotation, relative strength and momentum on a very long-term basis. We're using month-end closing data for it. So right now it has a pretty substantial position in technology, communication services, consumer discretionary, and industrials, all of the leading sectors year to date. But then it has a balanced piece to it where we're trying to limit the drawdowns and uh, you know through corrections like we're seeing in the broader market right now with positions in what we call risk off asset classes. So it's short-term treasuries, long-term treasuries, and gold. All of these positions are achieved via ETF. So if you can think of it as a, an ETF of ETF that's actively managed, long-term in focus, conservative in its primary goal to not only leverage sector leadership, 
but also to minimize drawdowns. And you can find more information at fairleadfunds.com. Yeah, cool. And we will link to that also in the show notes. Good for you for putting out your own ETF. That is not easy. That is not cheap. But you obviously believe in what you do. And I've seen the industry is waking up to it. You won some awards there. So congratulations. Let's go out on this. You gave us some great indicators. If we want to just get started, you've given us your indicators to watch right now. But I'm wondering, what is Katie Stockton's favorite absolute technical indicator? What's the one that you're constantly looking at that brings a smile to your face? Well, I always tell people if I if I had to go to a deserted island with just one indicator, it would probably be the MACD indicator. It stands for moving average convergence divergence. So again, the basis is a moving average. So I believe in those as well. And while it's a lagging gauge, we can look at them over multiple timeframes to really refine the trend following and the read on momentum on a daily chart, on a weekly chart, on a monthly chart. And that will help guide our positioning and market timing. Had everyone just had a monthly MACD indicator on the chart of the S&P 500, you know, ahead of the 2008 swoon, uh, they would have been really well served by that. So over their history, that monthly MACD has been this really value add and, and making sure that at least even if you're still exposed, you, you know that the trend is working against you longer term. Yeah, we love that. And folks, we will link to that also in the show notes. Good stuff on Investopedia on all of these indicators, of course, but we love to go to the pros and Katie Stockton is one of them. She's the founder and managing partner of Fairlead Strategies and someone you should be following. Thanks so much for rejoining the Express, Katie. Thank you, Caleb. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing finance and economic term we need to know this week. And this week's term has been getting a lot of attention in economic circles lately. It's the Phillips curve. And according to our favorite website, the Phillips curve is an economic theory stipulating that inflation and unemployment have a stable and inverse relationship. Developed by William or Bill Phillips, a New Zealand crocodile hunter turned economist who taught at the London School of Economics in the mid-20th century, the Phillips curve claims that with economic growth comes inflation, which in turn should lead to more jobs and less unemployment. Well, here in the U.S., we've had very high inflation, slowing economic growth, but very strong employment over the past couple of years. The Fed has been raising rates to bring down inflation and wage growth, as we know. It's winning the first battle, but not really the second. Wage growth is slowing, to be sure, but it's still up 4.2% year over year, and unemployment at 3.8% is still really low. Now, the Fed loves the Phillips curve. Fed Chair Powell cites it all the time, and that has a lot of economists and strategists wondering if the Fed may not be done with hiking rates, even if inflation stabilizes so it can cool down the labor market. We'll see next week when the Fed announces its decision on interest rates on September 20th. We're going to let the late, great Steve Jobs take us out this week. Given the upcoming release of the iPhone 15, we're going to take it all the way back to January 9th, 2007. That was the day that Jobs and Apple rolled out the very first iPhone, and in the process, revolutionized the way we live, the way we work, the way we share, and the way we connect with everyone and just about everything we do today. An iPod, a phone, and an internet communicator. An iPod. A phone. Are you getting it? These are not three separate devices. This is one device. And we are calling it iPhone.
Steve Jobs was onto something, to say the least. Thanks for riding with us this week. As always, and special thanks to Katie Stockton for rejoining the Express. It's always so good to hear her insights. We'll link to Fairlead Strategies newsletters and a free trial for those in the show notes and all the reports we cited on this week's show. We're spending this week at Future Proof on the boardwalk in Huntington Beach, California, with a few thousand financial advisors, planners, investors, influencers, and financial service companies. It's a one-of-a-kind wealth festival produced by our pals at Advisor Circle and Ritholtz Wealth. Follow our social channels at Investopedia all week for some goodies from Future Proof, and we'll bring you some highlights in next week's episode. And we'll talk again a little further on down the line. Oh,